Hey guys, welcome to another episode of the Tokushikai Inside Look podcast, where I share inspiring stories of Budoka around the world. Please share your favorite episodes with your dojo and community so this effort can be spread to more corners of the earth. This episode is brought to you by our amazing patrons over at Patreon. By donating as little as a cup of coffee to a bowl of ramen, they've directly made this podcast possible. If you're enjoying this work and can spare a small tip each month, it would mean a lot to me. I'll also be sharing the occasional behind the scenes clips and side initiatives that build on this podcast. You can find it at www.patreon.com forward slash Tokushikai Canada. Thanks in advance for your support. And now, on to the interview. Okay, so this, this session we wanted to talk about control and calibration. I can't, I always mix up if it's calibration and control or control and calibration. Uh, it's not order sensitive, it's like command, command and conquer. We can sort those around. Okay, cool. So let's just talk about the beginning. Like, how did it? How did you start coming up with something like this? Okay, so I mean, I was for a couple of months now, knowing that we were going to have this meeting. I've been trying to think about how did it come about, really. And there's there's so many kind of motivations that, that caused it. I guess the earliest one was when Ashido Sensei would have seminars in Europe. Quite often there'll be a schedule like, you know, having the seminar, uh, sorry, having the examination on the last day around lunchtime. And then in the afternoon, people would sort of start drifting off home because a lot of people had to travel uh, long distance. So in the last two hours or so of the of the seminar, there'd be only maybe half the people there. And we'd already been through all of the Zenken Ren stuff by this point ad nauseum. And we'd done some Koryu. And now there was just like this bunch of stay huds who, who were who were left. And this was when actually most of the really interesting instruction came because Sensei would look at a particular part of Seite, for example, and then he would sort of get, an, get a volunteer out and say, okay, show me what you're doing here. And then he would explain why we do things a certain way. Not just why we're instructed to do it a certain way in EI, but why as humans, we actually do certain movements quite naturally. And he would point out how Seite or Eido in general is kind of structured around the way that humans work and how the body works. And then how we have to adapt our movements to kind of echo this message that's coming through in Seite so that you don't end up doing unnatural movements. So this was really interesting stuff. I'll, I'll give you an example. Sensei asked us, why do we do Saibiki when we do Nukitsuke? And, you know, all the sort of normal answers come out saying, you know, you get balance of left and right. He said, yeah, 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 all these are good. These are, these are all good. And then he had somebody sat in front of, or he would sit in front of somebody who was going to do my. And he would say, okay, so go into the Nukitsuke position. So let's say you contact here. Now, you can quite easily cut from from your left to your right so this way is quite strong you can push across but for me i can dodge back quite easily as soon as i see the kisakis coming in from the side it's not a problem for me to dodge away so this isn't a particularly reliable strategy for the person who's doing the kitsuke so he said well what we should be doing in seite really because there is this instruction to do saibiki is making the kisaki enter here but aim towards the 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 rear the left side back of the head so the kisakis if you look at the kisaki from above it's not only traveling sideways but it's also going forwards and he would then get the person to try to make the after being fully extended to reach the temple in the first instance he would say now try to make the kisaki go to the back of the head and as soon as they do that 
they end up having to do Saibiki and sort of rotating their upper body slightly to 45 degrees. Saibiki comes naturally. And he said that there you are. That's why um, Saibiki doesn't just mean taking the, the sire off the sword or achieving Saibanara, but you actually need it to make sure that you have a forward velocity when you're doing Nukitsuke. So this was kind of mana from the gods, really. And there was loads of little lessons like this. And I thought it'd be really great if this could be incorporated into slightly more formal Yaido instruction rather than just reading from the manual. So years later, I'm finding myself teaching in, in Poland and teaching in the Czech Republic. So I'm going to Poland like five times a year to teach Yaido and Jodo. And most of the guys there are young, smart, athletic, train hard, and they're enthusiastic. So after a few years of kind of reading the manual to them, you kind of run out of things to teach. And this happened surprisingly fast, really, once I was allowed to just kind of let rip. And we couldn't really do much Koryu because there was a mixed group of, of Ryuha there. We kind of got through all the Seisei stuff and I was turning up again two months after the previous seminar. And I was like, what, what am I going to teach? I mean, we could just uh, train, but then that's a lot of, you know, people have travelled for like long, for more hours than I have to get there. To, to drive from North Poland to South Poland, it's like five or six hours. So it's not really fair just to just to sort of call people together and just train together. That's not really a, an experience. So I was starting to get a bit stumped about what I should do to, to progress them. You know, the Polish squad are, are pretty good, actually. And most of the guys who were coming to the, the um, seminars were from the Polish national squad. You know, they've been winning the European Championships a few times up to now. Not through no, not through any primary influence from me, but because they... They train hard. They've got people like Moriyama Sensei going there. They had Jock Sensei going there for a few years. A Vic Cook Sensei was going there. So there's lots of input from, from other high grades. And, you know, they, everything that I could tell them, they'd heard all this before years ago, and they'd been training it to a really high degree. And then it, the kind of, the, I, I suppose I turned a corner at some point at a Czech seminar in, I can't remember the, the second name of this place, where there was 50 people there. And again, some of them were, were pretty good there was some beginners there as well and there was also some high grades who wanted to come along and have their eido progressed a little bit not just turn up to do training so i was i was i remembered that ishido sensei has said to all of his high grades a few years previously that if you're seventh dan in europe now you may not be the level of an eighth dan but you basically have the responsibilities of an eighth dan because you there's nobody higher than you in europe you have got to now develop the next generation that's the raison d'etre for having an eighth dan, is to get the next generation ready and the next generation after that and prep your next generation to get them to start generating the next generation. So it's, it's got to, you've got to start this cascade pretty early. Stop focusing on yourself, guys, and think about everybody else that's coming underneath you. And also, don't hold back anything. If you, if you teach everything that you know to somebody, you don't lose anything. You're not you're not giving everything away so that you've got nothing. You're just giving all you've got to somebody. And maybe try to help your students to not fall down the same pitfalls that you fell down. If you spent years doing something wrong and then finally you got it right, don't make your students do the same thing. That's stupid. That makes the Ido go backwards because there's always more things to do wrong than there is to do right. So stop people from doing the stupid stuff you guys did and get them moving forwards. So this reminded me that what we have to try and do is develop our own skills so that we can grab the people who are 
uh, junior to us and catapult them over us. Use all our all of our efforts as teachers and all of their efforts as students to fire them past us, to make them better than we were as quickly as we possibly can. So I started thinking about the fact that I had been working on stupid, trivial things for years, especially in my lead up to sixth band. So I was guilty of kind of doing repetitious throcking, just repeating things ad nauseum and still not getting it right, thinking that if I just repeated it enough times, it would just get better. And it doesn't. You end up with RSI and tendonitis instead. So I thought about how people learn to, learn to dance, how they learn to drive, how they learn to cook. And, you know, how to learn any kind of physical skill, which requires a little bit of mental input as well. And then I realized that actually we do something a little bit rare in Budo, which is we have this faith that if we just throw ourselves at practice and just do practice for the sake of practice, then we hope that we're going to get better. And I think the reality is that if you compare it to other physical things, we're awful at doing that. It's, it doesn't, it's not a working strategy. You know, we should be mindful in our practice. And I don't think we're, we're mindful enough. If anybody's interested in reading about how I spent years throcking for my sixth dan, I've got a blog called Shugyo Iido and Jodo Blogspot. And it's, it, it's, I think at the time people were sort of saying, oh, this is a really nice blog, Andy. Thanks for doing this. But if I look back at it now, it's just crazy that I spent so much time just basically making the same mistakes. So I'm at this, this seminar in Czech Republic. And I'm I'm already getting bored of hearing myself. I'm walking around. There's EQs doing certain mistakes, and then there are fifth hands making the same mistakes. And I could spend a little bit of time with every person at the seminar and make people feel that they're getting some kind of personal feedback. But then there's 50 people there, and it's a weekend. At most, you're going to get a few minutes, and then I'll go along and almost say the same thing to somebody else. But then they're also doing something slightly different as well, or maybe they're doing the wrong thing in a slightly different way. So having a, a, sugar, uh, a sugar and just explaining something again isn't necessarily going to help. In fact, you probably find yourself with your own students. If you see everybody doing the same thing wrong, you can call them all together and say, guys, do it like this. And then within five minutes, most of them have kind of gone back to what they're doing because you've now given them something else to think about or they're doing the next form and it's the same mistake. So I just thought, I I'm not going to do this anymore. I'm not going to spend... Um, I'm not going to waste these guys' time and money just reading out the manual and hoping that they get it right. Let's look at some things in extreme detail. So the, the technique that I picked on, the first dipping of the toe into the water of control and calibration, or calibration and control, was on Murata So I noticed that when everybody did the, the initial draw, the initial Nukiuchi, that there was a range of problems. Some people didn't have much power. Some people were lunging their body forwards. Some people had the tip bouncing at the end. And I thought, well, there must be this ideal way of doing this. So why don't we just find the best way, the proper way of doing this, and just do it slowly, understand it, and uh, just practice it like this. And don't put power into it. Don't turn it into a fight. Turn it into a simple physical action. And then I, I'm just going to sort of step out from the the whole C&C thing for a second, the, the, the sort of prelude to, to C&C is that things like Fighting Spirit and Seme and Zanshin and Kasselteki all kind of detract from your ability to physically do something correctly. 
Now, I'm not saying these things aren't important because, of course, they're important. All the fighty as aspect of EI is what brings people to EI. They don't do EI to just learn a, a set of balletic shapes. They do it so they can kind of think about how to fight with a sword. But the problem is that all of the, well, majority of the exams are passed and failed on people's um, technical ability. And most people actually don't have too much of a problem visualizing, putting a bit of feistiness into their technique, doing correct metzger, slowing down during Zanshin. These are easy bits. These are bits that you could teach somebody to do in a, in a few months. It's all, the, it's all the hard technical stuff that people kind of spend their lives on. So the first thing to kind of get rid of is any pressure on yourself to do it fast and to instead just promise yourself that you're going to work on just the technique. And all the speed stuff can come later, just like every physical skill that you learn. So when you learn to drive, you don't get in the car and the instructor doesn't say to you, OK, we need to drive at 30 miles an hour and you need to steer properly and change gears properly. Go. You don't do this. You start off driving at snail's pace and you learn all these kind of techniques, how to change gears, how to, how to operate the clutch and the gas so that you don't crash the car. So why not do that with EI? and start off with that premise. And then once you've passed your test, you can then put your arm on the window and drive one-handed or steer with your knees at 80 miles an hour or drinking coffee and using your mobile phone. That's well, I, I was also, <laughs> I've also found it interesting that like when, when a sensei looks at you and says, you don't look like you have an opponent, the way to fix it is usually not like do it faster or make your eyes look like you have an opponent more. It is some kind of physical, technical thing that you're missing. Right, so. right. Exactly, yeah, yeah. And I, I think the, the kind of fringe habits, like not having enough control at the end, not being able to generate power, all contribute to that image as to whether or not there is a kasoteki. If, if your sword's kind of flopping around everywhere and your body's flopping around, then you can quite easily say, you don't look like you're fighting. You look like you're having a fight with yourself. So back to Czech Republic, back to Murata Zuki. <clears throat> we did a, a series of, of kind of position checks. So I said to everybody, right, first, everybody grab your sword with two hands. So you're about to draw and draw until you can get your wrist and your forearm correctly aligned under the hasuji. So they're at the like the river underneath the mune, basically. So the cutting line of the sword should bisect through your arm, just as it should do at the end of, of a draw or the end of a cut. You know, it doesn't have to, it doesn't have to go across it or along it perfectly, but it needs to kind of more or less bisect your, your arm. Otherwise, you're kind of cutting. I don't have many props, I'm afraid. <laughs> Grab a ruler. You know, you don't you don't want to be you want to be cutting something like this, and of course not like like this. If this needs if this waves in this way, this is quite a weak way to grip the, the sword, for instance. So you know, after a few months, I think everybody understands that when we are using the correct tenuchi, that we can squeeze the fingers, and the this part of the sire hits the bottom part of your palm, so you get a lot of stability and a lot of feeling that you've got power during the cut if you've got stability then your muscles will dare to use more power because you know that it's not going to injure you by by doing the cut so anyway i said to everybody like draw until your your everything is aligned okay and then max out your sayabiki 
And then from here, this is all the complicated movements finished. From here, you should now be able to just extend the sword into the cut. Being careful not to cut through your sire, of course. So you don't need to squeeze. You just need to make sure that all of your fingers are on the scar, including your, your pinky. And you just need to make sure that the hasuji is aligned properly so that you do cut the correct angle from Rotazuki. And your wrist is all correct. So from here, it should just be an extension. We did this, and I wouldn't say exactly by magic. It did take maybe 15 minutes. Everybody was doing this draw in Rotazuki just many times better than they were doing before. And they didn't actually have to think about anything else, really. Everything else sort of clicked into place. So by having all the hands properly gripping and aligned, the Kisaki nicely went up and over and made a nice large Nukiyuchi. I didn't hear any as the Kisaki came out of the, the sire. Everybody just everybody was already coordinating the, the important bits the first. There's a few more bits to this, which I, I don't I won't go into too much detail, but of course there was things like getting the sire biki moving early, getting the rotation set early so that you could get the the hasuji aligned in the grip easily. And this just eliminated a whole raft of problems like people drawing with the hasuji almost vertical and nearly chopping their left ear off. You know, if you hear it whistling past your left ear, this is a danger sign that um, you may be less one ear when you use a shinken. So this was the, the start of calibration and control. And it was really about both of those things. It was about saying, you have to get into this position first before you even think about extending into the cut. If you try and if you try and push this out with the, the sword being held in your hand like this and try and change the grip while the sword is already flying through the air, you're not going to get that lovely whistle that you want from the sword. You're not going to feel like you're gripping correctly. You're not going to have stability at the end of the cut. It's all going to be a kind of a mess. So... So it was a spontaneous kind of thing. You were looking around and you said, hey, let's try this other thing. And then as you built that up, you, you remembered it when you went back to to London or something and started writing this down? Or yeah, yeah, yeah. thinking about it more? Yeah. I just started thinking about it more. And I realized that I, I'd done little bits of this with the, the Polish guys and also within my dojo. And also on the Shugyo blog, you can see a few attempts of trying to kind of do this calibration. In fact, I'm... Just going to send you something now, actually. Shall I share my screen? Is that the easiest thing to do? Yeah, let me give you access. Great, thank you. Okay, it should be working now. Great, just get the, the thingy up. Right, there we go. Uh, share screen. Okay. And it's this um, animated. Oh, clip. I think I've seen this. Yeah, this was on the, the Shugyo blog. It must have been a couple of years ago now. Mm. Uh, it was. It was. I think the, the article was called "How to Do All the Different Ways to Do Kesagiri Badly." This is Oli Oli Jarvis from my dojo. He's not by any means a bad practitioner. He's extremely talented. He trains very very hard. But what he's doing here is pretty much what most of us do, including myself, until I became aware that this was happening. And the, the meaning of this is that this kind of shark's fin shape that the Kisaki makes is what most people do. Now, if you're, if the, if you're going to decide in Seita EI that the opponent doesn't move in Kesagiri, that the first cut is supposed to be against the same positioned opponent as the second cut, 
then something's wrong because if the first if the position of the opponent is determined by the first upper draw, as it is here, then the second cut's either hitting him with the ska or just not really doing anything. Maybe your your hands kind of go into the, the gouge that you've made with the with the uppercut. So it was a, an exercise of looking at all of the contributing factors to not having the upper draw and the and the descending draw, uh, descending cut running almost on the same line. It doesn't have to be perfect, but the more, the wider this sort of shark's fin shape is, the more it requires your opponent to be displaced between the first and the second cut. Mm-hmm. So the little marks that you can see on the floor is is one of the contributing factors, which is if the back foot shifts a bit, then this can, this, this entire movement will be added to the displacement. So the more okuriashi you do, the more your your opponent needs to be displaced. The the second contributing factor, it's a little bit difficult to see on the animated GIF. Maybe I can show you in a series of shots instead. Uh, give me a second. I'll just close that. Did you draw draw that yourself, or was uh, it a- yeah, it it wasn't as it, I just did this using PowerPoint and just, just converting <laughs> the video into individual slides. I think using VLC. And then putting, uh, then making the slides into a GIF using an online tool. Uh, here we go. We can look. Oh, that's not the right one. Sorry. Oh, yeah. So you can see how here. This is all fine. This is a perfect position, really. The right hand about shoulder height. No need to duck forwards or anything. No need to push the sword down. But what all of us do is the moment we get Cybernale, we start to pull the right hand up too early. Mm-hmm. And we're using Tenuchi to get the Kisaki moving, but it's too late. The right hand is already raising, and now the kisaki is elevating too quickly in front of you, and it's not—it doesn't have that that forward velocity that it needs. So it makes quite a shallow cut going up. And then, when you get two hands on the sword, you then have the ability to do a good quality cut, and then the kisaki gets cast forwards, and you end up in this this funny wide shark's fin. So all the things that are wrong there, if you just spend some, if you take the pressure off yourself to do it quickly and trying to do it with a lot of sharpness in the cut and instead just slow down, do it gradually and look at everything. These two problems of the excessive kuriashi or the, the pulling up of the sword, these can be eliminated really quickly. Yeah. Yeah, you just have to know that you're doing it first. Exactly, exactly this. So uh, as you see from the Shugyo blog, the, the initial two or three years, I think, of posts were about being videoed and spending time looking at yourself, which reminded me of somebody recently on, on, your, on your podcast talked about, oh, it was Andy Fisher talking about watching what he was doing after training and comparing it to what the eighth fans were doing in their kendo shield. Mm-hmm. And I thought, oh, good, good, good. I'm, I'm glad somebody <laughs> else spent hours after training about one o'clock in the morning looking at their at their evening's training to see what they were doing because that's what I did this was back when VHS videotapes were around my my dojo senpai would video me during the evening's practice and then give me the videotape from the previous week and then I'd go home and just spend hours going through it and, and trying to see what I was doing mm-hmm. well then that means like part of this CNC stuff is besides not getting your students to repeat the same problems you had, but also not have to go through that level of investigation or filming themselves multiple times and exactly. then figuring it out on their own too much. Yeah. 
yeah yeah i think a little bit of of doing of examining yourself and trying to trying to do fault finding and then researching how to get rid of these points that is useful to a certain degree but there's a, there's only amount a finite amount of time that you can dedicate to to ei and jodo and other buddha and if you can you know doing a little bit of that development is useful but it, it gets it gets boring pretty quickly and you want somebody to kind of say this is why this is happening and i went through it myself so this is what you should do to get rid of it well it seems like the the ultimate goal is that you're aware of everything yourself because the only reason you're filming is because you're not aware of it so you need to see it so that's already an extra step but if you're right. doing this practice then you're like okay i can feel that my arm is doing this i can i can feel that my body is shifting this way you don't have to see it to know and then now you can fix it right away exactly yeah it's yeah it's really about being aware of what you're doing and then sort of thinking about why that's happening and all you know I, i'm i'm pretty sure 95 percent of the of the general problems we have in ei for example are not made by the fact that we're trying to do it too quickly but certainly this pressure to do things fast and with semi and power and pressure, it all takes our attention off of it, which brings us on to control theory, I think. Yeah, like. so there's all this, we were talking about like how it's starting to coalesce in, in your head and mm. now it's becoming a system. How did that happen? So I, I am a, an engineer and I spent quite a few years working on automatic control systems. I'm not a control engineer, so it's not my speciality, but I know a little bit about it. And what I found most interesting was something out of what's called system dynamics, which is PID control and closed loop control. So I'll, I'll, I won't talk too much about it because it's not that interesting. It's just important to realize that we have it. So closed loop control and open loop control are basically mean either a control system which is based on feedback or a control system which is just based on an initial evaluation and aiming. So, for example, if you fire an arrow in archery or, or something, to a certain degree, especially to the beginner, you're, you're aiming first and then you fire and you hope that you hit the target. So this is typical kind of open loop control. Closed loop control is what we do every day with our body. If we go and pick something up, then we don't typically aim our hands and fire and hope that we catch it and hope that all the noise which is affecting our muscles and our joints doesn't make us miss. What we really do, especially if we're having to reach around something to pick something up, is we send a control signal to our hand to move and then we monitor where our hand is going to and we then make, make fine adjustments until... Our, our hand reaches the thing and then we start to rely on, on sensory feedback we can feel the thing that we're gripping and pretty early on we know if this thing is stable or if it's only very precariously balanced um, whether it's light or heavy and then we, we make all of our gripping movement based upon these signals back upon feedback so this is is is, uh, is closed loop control we don't simply snatch usually Unless we are catching something like a, a fast-moving ball, in which case we do closed-loop control on our own positioning and where we put our hands. But in, in terms of catching a ball quickly, we do have to do a kind of open-loop control, 
we may not have that much time to do many feedback exercises to control the catch. We, we have to kind of hope that we that we do it. And that's done through practice, of course. So that's the difference between open loop and closed loop control and recognizing that if we do things a little bit too quickly, that we're not giving ourselves feedback time and we're not able to do things well coordinated. PID control is basically how your cruise control on your car works. I'm trying to think if there's an easier way to describe it, though, because a car is a pretty difficult one to, to use. P stands for proportional gain, which is you, you realise that if you put your foot on the gas on your car, that the the number of centimetres or inches that you push down isn't directly reflected in the speed that your car accelerates. There is a kind of multiplication factor between how much you push and what the car then does, how much how much gasoline petrol gets into the engine. So this is just a pure multiplication factor. So this is P standing for, depends on which books you read, but mostly stands for proportional, proportional gain. I is for integral uh, or integral, which means if you, in a car, if you put your foot on the gas quite hard, and no, if you, if you put your foot on the gas initially and the car doesn't accelerate as fast as you want it to, you give it a few seconds and then you start to put more, more gas to get it to accelerate in the way that you want it to. So this is about time. If you don't get a response within a certain period of time, you start to add more and more gas or pressure or signal, more control signal into your into your system. And then D, which is stands for derivative. Uh, again, this is all kind of these are all calculus terms. Derivative is that if you're car responds a little bit too quickly if the, if the rate of change is too quick more than you want then you tend to take your foot off the gas so if you if you're hiring a car and you've accidentally booked yourself a maserati and you sit in it <laughs> and then you're at the traffic lights and then you think i better better pull away slowly because there's a police car next to me and you tap the accelerator and you go zooming off you immediately take your foot off the gas so this is about speed of response rather than duration of response now, these, this science came about from, I, I believe, initially, there's a very good Wikipedia article on PID. Initially, it was designed by observing how human pilots operate large ships. So if you're, operating, if you're, if you're piloting a, a big tanker, uh, a big oil tanker, you, you're probably aware that if you, if you turn the wheel, it takes quite a lot of time before the, the boat moves at all. It might take a few minutes before you perceive any kind of movement at all. There's so, the boat has so much inertia in one direction and the, con the control surface is so small in comparison to the bulk of the, of the oil tanker, it takes a long time to start moving. And then when it does start moving, once you reach your objective angle, you better start steering back to straight because it's going to take a long time before the tanker stops rotating. And so engineers who looked at this, who wanted to automate piloting oil tankers or, or large ships examined how humans did it and they noticed that humans are actually really really good so they did a lot of studies into the mathematics of, of what was happening in terms of timing when the pilot would start turn where, where they would go to a maximum uh, and not oversteer and when they'll start turning back to straight again and they developed this PID control from that and it's now become the, the heart of air conditioning systems cruise control possibly your boiler maybe not your board or maybe your hot water control in your heating does it as well it's it's it all allows things to not oversteer or 
take too long to reach your desired value? How does that feed into calibration and control? We don't have to worry too much about it because we do it ourselves quite naturally. If when babies and children are learning to move and walk, then they develop these skills and, and you don't have to retrain somebody. But what you have to be aware of is that there are PID routines happening when you make a movement all the time. Every single joint that you've got, every muscle, every set of nerves that are being used to, to feed back to you are doing a, they're all creating this PID control. Your brain is doing the PID control itself. But these are these are, these are a multitude of signals going backwards and forwards. Now, the, 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 the thing is that if you learn a complicated skill, it takes a long time to develop that coordination. So I think in my CNC video on the first or the second one, I talk about juggling. But this is this is in itself quite a, a tricky skill to learn how to position reliably the catching hand so that you don't actually have to spend any time coordinating this. You throw and it lands in the catching hand. You don't have to concentrate too much on it. You, but you have to do this at the beginning. You learn to throw the ball and to position the left hand. And then you're learning to throw the ball reliably and consistently. And you're learning that the left, you don't have to put much uh, mental effort into the left hand. It should be in the right place all the time. You might have to return it back because the left hand is going to throw as well. So you then learn to return your left hand back to the optimal catching position. If we were, if we had multiple brains or more brains than we've got at the moment, then we may not have to learn that skill. We could independently coordinate the left hand and the right hand to do both the throwing and the catching routines individually. I do know one person who can, who's both ambidextrous and they, because they've got some kind of brain problem, well, it's not really a problem really, it's more of, a, of an X-Men skill. On a board, they can write two different sentences at the same time. And I, possibly she can write in two different languages, two different sentences at the same time. Now, I, I challenge anybody to learn that as a skill. It's not something that's easily done. And one of the, the axioms that I talked about in CNC is that multitasking, we are not as good as we thought we were. Now, the reason why I called it an axiom, which was one of the questions you asked, is that I haven't done these studies myself, but I have read uh, the summary of a few studies, which say that firstly, the, the act of simultaneous multitasking, we are not that good at. We actually have to spend a lot of time learning how to do simultaneous multitasking. The multitasking we think we're actually doing during the during the work day, like having multitasking windows and doing spreadsheets and calendars and drinking coffee and answering the phone at the same time. These are not actually, they're a kind of multitasking. What you're actually doing is, is task switching. So you're switching from one task to another and never really spending a lot of time concentrating on one task. And it has been shown that we are actually less efficient when we have lots of task switching going on, that we have to kind of do a certain period of recalibration of our brains to get back to doing the task that we were doing. And we, we don't get back up to optimal efficiency until after a certain period of time. So although we, we think we're smart, that we can do all these different things, in fact, we'd be much better off focusing on, on, a, on a fewer number of things at a time and getting better at doing those. And this feeds directly into the heart of CNC in saying that don't try to do too many things at the same time. And certain things, as I've already talked about, ad nauseum, like Seme, Kasoteki, Johaku, <laughs> leave it.
it's not helping. It's just, it's more clutter that you don't need. So just quickly, let's try to wrap up around, uh, like a bow around these different theories that you mentioned, like systems dynamics, control theory, PID, and then this multitasking thing. I think starting with just the control, we we're talking about is that we, in order to learn something, we're constantly going one way and another way, we're constantly testing. So there's a lot already going on to, to learn one thing. The PID part is specifically, what are we doing? Are we playing around with like the proportional strength power we're using? Are we putting, where are we adding in the power? That's the integral part. Are we taking away in, in the derivative part? And then knowing that we're doing all of this stuff, our body has to do all of this stuff. Let's not focus on too many of these things because we're quickly get overwhelmed or we'll just skip over. We, we won't get to the level granularity of these control, I, I don't know, nudges that we're doing to, to our bodies to f- figure things out. That kind of. That, that's, that's a, that's a, no, that's, that's a really good, that's a really good summary of it, really. I mean, the, 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 the PID aspect of it is extreme, I'd say is extremely difficult. I'm, I'm not at a stage in my own development of CNC where I can directly apply PID principles into, into things. The, the thing which I, I thought it would be useful for first, it still needs a lot of research on my side, really, which is when you're doing Kiriroshi, where to put the power into. And this, this is slightly problematic because certain teachers teach different ways. To give an example, I think the way that Oshita Sensei teaches it is quite popular amongst a few of the teachers that travel outside of Japan, which is that the maximum power needs to be occurring at the point of contact. So this movement from Furikaburi to the point of contact can be relatively soft, and then there should be a, a sharp descent during the cutting part. I, I should, I'm should, i going to be completely honest and say that Ishido-sensei has almost the opposite opinion to this, which is that the important thing is to get your sword on the opponent quickly. And by that point, it's traveling at maximum speed anyway. You don't need to put much effort into getting the sort of cut once it's moving fast. So as far as he's concerned, you should be developing maximum power from the point of Furikaburi to the point of contact. Now, I'm not going to say which one is right or wrong. This is purely a philosophical point, and I wouldn't say that you should do anything except follow your teacher's philosophy on this. But there is a, a PID idea behind how to get the power to appear where you want it to appear uh, and not spend time laboring up to the point of power, but actually getting some reasonable acceleration going so that you can get some speed, but then you're not leaving, you're not using up all of your power too early so that you end up kind of in, in a, this locked position here at the point of contact. That- well, I'm also thinking like that you can take that internally too, because we say we have to use power from the Hara so there, there's a lot of things in between your hara and your fingertips. There's like your, your chest muscles, your arm, your shoulder, all that stuff. And it seems like that transference of power, there is going to be some kind of signal that goes from one direction. And then when you have to take it away, you have to, like, how does that even work? Yeah, I mean, and there's also almost certainly going to be a slight delay that you need to account for if you want mm-hmm. things to move at the right time and in the right critical sequence, which if we've got time, we could talk about, but uh, let me answer it. Anything that you want to ask, Patrick? I know that I think that kind of wraps up like this, how, how it was formed because of... Sorry, my answer. <laughs> Sorry, thank you. 
Yeah. So you already had some kind of intuitive sense of a way to practice. And then you kind of applied this professional knowledge you have in engineering to try to figure out what is it that you're thinking of it that allows you to put it into a package. And now you can hopefully start delivering it to, to your students. Yeah. Although it's, it's vastly underdeveloped at the moment. It's, it's really work in practice, which is why I haven't done that many videos on it. Mm. Well, I think that that the concept you brought up that Ishiro-san just said is just give all that you have right now. And yeah. that's what I wanted to focus on too. It's like part of, part of what students can learn from our teachers, not necessarily just their knowledge, but also their process of gathering knowledge. And this is kind of how you're thinking about your practice and it could help others think about their own practice. Mm. Yeah, definitely. Cool. So you mentioned that the first axiom, humans aren't good at multitasking. multitasking. Could you go over the, the next couple of ones? Yeah, let me just go back to the document. Uh, so the other second axiom was objective is to move high level task into subconsciousness. So this is almost certainly the, the aim for any physical skill that you learn, whether it's dancing, football, basketball, driving, shooting other pilots out of the sky. You, when you learn to drive, for example, you, you almost certainly can remember, I hope that you spend a lot of your your brain resources remembering to, if you're learning manual, if you're learning stick, that you've got to get it into the right, you've got to do something with your left, with your right hand in, in Canada and America, left hand in the UK, uh, and you've got to then carefully coordinate the clutch and the gas so that you don't stall the car, uh, and then you're steering at the same time, and you're listening to your driving instructor, and by the time you pass your test, all of this is no longer thought about. And you're doing everything not not to the same subconscious level that, say, our brain controls our heartbeat, but certainly it's kind of being done on a, on a mid-level automatic part of our brain. Otherwise, driving would be exhausting, more exhausting than it is if you if you were still every five seconds checking the rear view mirror and thinking about how to change gear and carefully adjusting the clutch, then this would be awful, wouldn't it? So we almost certainly want to be able to get these routine tasks working automatically in our, in our mid-level consciousness. We don't want to be devoting things to that when we really want to be devoting our, our high-level consciousness onto things like Kizeme, Kasseltiki, timing, distance, all these other slightly more, how can I say, cloudy concepts that need a bit more concentration. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I like I like bringing up this axiom now because after all this talk about oh, there's so many so many things you can think about of how your body is working, all these different control points. The goal is not to just stick at that point. Like once you've played around with those control points. You can, the goal is to bring that back into your subconscious so that you don't have to worry about it. Right, exactly. Yes, yeah. Of all the things that can go wrong, like not putting your feet under early enough when you do the kit scare, there must be a strategy for that to happen automatically where you don't need to be thinking about it too much. And the strategy I mentioned in one of the videos, which came from Osha Sensei, is if you begin sitting in Caesar with your feet already pushing into the floor, that's a mental resource that you don't have to remind yourself with later on. And that becomes habit that you sit in Caesar always with that feeling of being slightly buoyant. And then you never have to think about it again. Hmm. Yeah. And the third axiom was uh, best way to do this is through slow repetition of the correct techniques. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> this isn't, um, uh, I, I've got no, no documented evidence for this, except everything that we do in life. That we we you know we learn to drive, cook, dance, by usually 
most effectively by doing things slowly and repet- and doing the correct technique repetitively rather than doing what we seem to be doing in the idle all the time, which is uh, open loop firing an arrow. You know, you, you kind of do the form quickly and you hope that you get it right. And maybe if you do the form 5,000 times, you might have done it right enough number of times that you might go forward a little bit. But this means that you've maybe done 95% of it incorrectly. And this is just creating more and more bad habits that are difficult to get out of. And, you know, every teacher I've ever met says, don't practice bad habits. These are hard to break, but try and practice good habits. And the best way to practice a, a good, correct way is to do it slowly. I just repeat, you, you, you can then do this ad nauseum repetition and throcking, but let's do it mindfully and do it correctly. And if you, if you find that if you go fast, you do it incorrectly, then it's obvious. Don't do it fast. Do it slowly. Yeah. Well, the biggest barrier to anyone practicing slow, well, there's their, their personal interest in just being in a fight and looking like a samurai, like a ninja. But there's also like when, when Sensei says, oh, you're starting to look robotic, you don't have an opponent. That's mm. like the automatic switch is like, okay, I need to start speeding up and yeah. not doing this. Yeah, but as you've already said, you know, there's almost certainly physical issues that are causing that impression rather than a lack of speed and power or or the other thing, which is to kind of grimace a little bit more, maybe close your eyes slightly and look like you're growly. And then that often satisfies a lot of people, weirdly. So I I had some notes here that we're talking about specific videos, which are focused on either one part of a technique or another. Do you want to go over that or just maybe do some broad strokes across the different seite kata? You could just like name each one and just say, generally when I think about CNC. Yeah, so actually the one I'd like to talk about, rather than talk about something which is already on a video which people can go and watch, is if I can just share my screen again, because this will take us away from control and onto calibration, if that's okay. And I'd like you to look at this picture here and tell me what you see. Well, if, if it's the angle of the camera, one person's hand seems to be higher than the other. So parallax error almost certainly is having an effect on... So this in, in white, this is uh, Jesper Valdestal from Sweden, who's a very good friend of mine. And in black is Wilkash Mahura, who you've had on your program already, who's also a very good friend of mine. Neither of these guys are my students, so I don't feel bad about <laughs> criticizing them that they're, they're good mates of mine yeah so the parallax error does make Jesper look like the hand is a little bit too high up so let's assume that it is a little bit parallax error but almost certainly what you can see here is that his uh, hand is probably pretty much level with his shoulder but it look doesn't it look beautiful though doesn't Jesper look beautiful in this what is it about this this form in the way he's doing it now and and I have lots of photographs of myself doing it in a, in a similar way. What's so wonderful about this? To me, it looks like there's this, this really powerful straight line in starting from his left shoulder, passing through his right shoulder, traveling along his arm, along the sword to the kisaki. It's this beautiful projection. And it looks amazing. And, and I'm sure I've probably won a few taikai based upon <laughs> this kind of uh, beautiful, aesthetically pleasing position. And then if you look at Wukash, 
this doesn't occur so much. It doesn't quite look so beautiful. So his right hand is definitely lower than his shoulder. But then the sword looks pretty much horizontal. If we look a little bit closer, Jesper has this what's called Hanami Giri angle to the Hasuji. So it's not laterally, perfectly laterally aligned. The Hasuji is slightly down, which is what uh, we've been taught, taught by a, a few senseis to do. So that's wonderful. Wukash is a little bit more lateral there. The Hasuji is quite flat, but this is fine. This is, means it's, it's kind of cutting nice and straight, maybe makes a nice sound when it comes out. Now, the main problem with this is, uh, and this is just down to calibration, there's a, a slight axiom we have to agree to, which is that at the point of Nukitsuke, either the sword should be, so the actual length of the sword should be either horizontal, or let's say, let's agree to a maximum that the Kisaki can be level with the bottom of the tsuba. Just a, it's just an arbitrary allowance. You know, if, if I did Nukitsuke and the sword was declined like this, then everybody would say this is ridiculous. This isn't Nukitsuke. Uh, actually, we do that quite a lot. If we try and calibrate the elevation of our sword to flat using our own eyes because of again parallax error almost certainly sword is going to be down like this in fact let me just go to another quick photograph and you can see another previous guest on inside look which is somewhere cedar so cedar is also a good friend of mine i'm sure he won't mind me picking him apart so almost certainly cedar believes in this point here as many of us would that his the blade is about horizontal and from our eyes, it looks like it is. But you can see that actually the Kisaki is considerably lower than the edge of the Tsuba. Actually, this isn't this isn't a particularly bad example, not a particularly good or bad example. It's not an extreme example at all. This is this is pretty good. But if you video yourself or get somebody to take photographs of you from the side, you'll be surprised how much the sword declines. Now, let me very quickly, I'll jump onto overcompensation, which you talked about. It was one of the questions you ought to ask me, Patrick. Mm -hmm. the, the, the method to overcompensate here is to feel like the Kisaki should look like it's actually going up. And almost certainly that will mean that the, the, the sword is horizontal. But this requires calibration by somebody helping you or videoing you to get the right position. Let me go back to, oh, in fact, there's Martin Lindgren, another friend, saying to Cedar, oi, get your Kisaki up. <laughs> But going back to this one, now the reason why Jesper's example is problematic, it's not declining too much. But if I was to say to Jesper, right, keep your hand in the same position, but just get the sword to be a little bit flatter so that it's a bit more like Wukash's, so it's perfectly horizontal. At that moment, I could get Jesper's clone and sit him in front of Jesper in Caesar and the sword would perfectly pass over his head. There's that much error, <clears throat> excuse me, between the height that we think we're drawing to in relation to the opponent and the height it actually is. And I do what Jesper does here. And I have to force myself to not do it. Wukash's hand looks like his hand is at chest height. If you sat Wukash's clone in front of him, this would be perfectly aligned to hit the temple and the eyes. But because we don't do these kind of calibration exercises, it's quite often we don't really see that in ourselves. So this is another thing that I did with the Czech guys on that occasion is to is to sit somebody in front of each person and say, look, this isn't hitting where you think it's hitting. And most people's either conscious or subconscious strategy is to dip the Kisaki down 
to reach them and then it looks ridiculous from the side but the right strategy is not to draw the sword up towards your imaginary opponent's face because you'll almost certainly create parallax area yourself but to draw the sword to your chest create a datum create calibrate a datum a standard position that your hand has to go to and always draw to that position if you're doing a cut to the eyes and if you're doing a cut to the door which we sometimes do in koryu then again create another datum yourself don't just do it based upon your own visual judgment so so in this case is control like more of the the macro movements and calibration of the micro movements or is it a um, different I, I think it's more to do with the, the calibration being part being part of the the finished shape and position so the static positions we make uh, are okay. they correct yeah and 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 just using a few strategies to kind of make sure that that's happening the the control bit is almost certainly the, the system dynamics meaning it's something which is moving so it's how we move ourselves into these positions mm -hmm. yeah okay so you, you mentioned one thing would be you, you sit the opponent in front of them. And then what, what do you think he should be feeling inside his body that's making the adjustments? Is it like, in this case, is it something in the fingers and the tenochi and the hand and the wrist and the shoulders? Do, do you mean the adjustment of the height of the sword and the, mm -hmm. the height of the hand? So it's a difficult question. I mean, I can answer it for myself, but I'm not sure how it works for the people. Certainly... To get this optimal calibrated position and to get, I think, what would be the right control, we have to do all the things that I mentioned in one of those CNC videos, which is to max out your left hand first so that that becomes something that's a task which is finished and you don't have to devote any resources to Cybiki. And also getting the rotation in at the right time, not too late, because that then becomes another stress on your system control. So don't leave it until the kisaki before you rotate because your sword will stop. Or you'll be rotating the sword while it's moving through the air, which is obviously not, not good. And then hopefully when all of these things are being achieved in terms of positioning and sequencing and timing, you then should sense that at the moment of Sayabanare, your the pinky of your right hand is very comfortably in the right position. It's, it doesn't have to be gripping completely. You don't have to be holding like this. But at least the the last pad of your pinky is located on the ha side of the ska. So the act of doing nukitsuke, the act of creating a nice sharp nukitsuke, is really just about yielding to the slight stress, the slight pressure you can feel in your small finger, and then going against it. And you'll find that the uh, nukitsuke is made with less effort, with less feeling like you're overreaching, with less feeling of shock at the end. And you should be able to create accuracy in your Nukitsuke. And once you can start to feel that you're actually in control of your sword in Nukitsuke, then calibration is really easy. You can then start to decide that I'm not going to cut to this point. I'm going to cut accurately to, to this point with a little help from your friends. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, actually, that's that's a very helpful way of thinking about it is that I think going back to the very beginning where we were saying that there's an optimal way of how the body moves. And if the sword sits in your hand in the right way, if your body's positioned in the right way, like you were saying before, lining the left shoulder with the right shoulder in that nice, like strong uh, pose, then 
if you want to do anything outside of that, like minor, then it's easy to do. Isn't it? Yeah, you're not putting yourself under stress and pressure to make an adjustment with all these other things that you're trying to juggle and balance at the same time. If they're all being put into the into the background, or or you have strategies which mean that they're already happening without you having to think about it, then this makes all the all the fine adjustments really easy. If I can just very briefly talk about another Ishido Sensei uh, thing, which was during one of these, during actually several of these, at the end of the seminar final sessions. He would get people to do forms like shihogiri or morotsuzuki, where you turn and see the opponent and then cut. And he would stand there and say, right, my hand is going to be the opponent, and you have to cut to where the opponent is. So for the first few times, you know, people turn around, they see his hand, and they cut correctly to where his hand is. And then after doing this a few times, just as they're about to cut, he then shifts to the side. Maybe he'll step or he'll just move his hand. And then suddenly you find yourself that you're, aiming in one direction and then suddenly you've got to turn and cut into another direction and he he didn't even explain this to us what the benefit was it's obvious if you can do your catters with a certain degree of flexibility and the ability to choose to make last moment changes then you're no longer tied to the cutter you're not doing the cutter as what's called katachi which just means shape you're actually putting some kind of content in the cutter it's now becoming a a practical, useful exercise in developing your sword. So if you are in the moment that he's moving his hand, if you're being careful to not trip over and you're worrying about whether or not your sword's in the right position because you've got so much error potential in your furikaburi because your arms aren't stretched enough, if you don't have that going on, it's easy. You, you Not only can you change your direction, you can turn, start to step forward and then step back. And, and still do a good quality because you freed yourself. You freed all the vital bits which are concentrating on the opponent instead of dedicating all your mental resources on, on how do I step without falling over. Mm-hmm. Mm. Yeah, that's actually giving me a good round picture of what why you calling it cal- control and calibration now because it's it's really yeah once you get once you have an, a good control of your body and you know how you should be moving and then that last bit it's. And you mentioned this multiple times too. It's either your your own practice or this sensei says it this way or this student does it this way, but that's right. This student does it another way, but that's right. This final calibration part is to give you all that flexibility in, in doing it these different ways, but it only looks good and only works if your your human body is working right way. And that yeah. that's universal to anyone. Yes, yeah. The, there's, a, there's a clip on the, of the CNC video of me doing this three different timings of the foot and the kisaki on the kitsuke. So I actually did this in Spain when I was doing a referee seminar with those guys. And they asked me some questions about this foot timing. And this was actually reminded to me by Robert Rodriguez Sensei, who at a different seminar uh, or championships years previously in Poland said, look guys, you can move your foot first, then kisaki, or both at the same time, or kisaki, then foot. But, you know, you can't go out of this range of, of reasonableness. If you put your foot there first and then three seconds later, your kisaki arrives, that's bonkers. That doesn't make any sense. But you've got this freedom of choice to the side. What I showed the Spanish guys is that they should be able to do all three of these timings. And if they can do it, not just doing it by accident or out of sheer repetition, then they've got some sort of decisiveness behind their technique and it looks good. It feels good. They can make that decision themselves which one to do. If teacher A says, kisaki first, then foot, you can change like that. 
if another teacher says no foot first thank you Saki you can change like that very good strategy for preparing for a grading where you're often told what you should be doing the, the morning or the day before the examination itself if you can quickly adapt then yeah that's a grading strategy <clears throat> what's that got to do with Budo well if you can adapt to any situation quickly that's what EI means right you the ability to quickly adapt in a in a in an everyday situation yeah, I, I try not to share too many of my own personal, like, direct opinions in this thing. But, like, this is one of the things that really gets me is when people complain that the Zen NKR kata have changed. And they're like, ah, <laughs> oh, they've changed it. How Again. dare they? Yeah. How dare they? Now, now, like, this is so stupid now. I don't I don't want to continue. It's like, what? It's like, the whole point is to of doing something like this is to be able to change. That's a very good point. Yeah, I, I kind of sympathise with that feeling of it being changed when, of course, you know, the, the, the writing on the page isn't being changed. And maybe the teacher, they're of their own kind of interpretation of what's being written down and being mm -hmm. said. And But that's refreshing, isn't it? Because quite often, in fact, you know, years ago when we had quite a broad range of Koryu teachers coming to the UK, they would teach their seite a little bit differently. And that was because their koryu was influencing their seite. And that was a really nice kind of spectrum of opinions to see because you're learning just a, a huge volume of, of stuff. And it all makes sense. And it, it's all logical. And it's just more interesting than trying to create this real kind of dull carbon copy standard way of doing seite, which without slagging off the ZNKR online, I feel doesn't really do Seite much service really to try to make it too rigid. Having a standard, of course, is important, isn't it? As it's supposed to be something that you're examined, uh, exam examined against. But it would be nice if there was a little bit of range of freedom to mm -hmm. be able to express your choreo through your Seite. So I think maybe just jump down to the last couple points. We don't have to spend too much time on it, but general thinking about when to bring in some of these concepts at different levels of practice. So beginner, intermediate, advanced. How do you think about that? So I, I think it, it's really important around sort of third down to fourth down that either the teacher themselves or the student starts to use some control and calibration strategy to assist their training. Louis Vitalis Sensei said to us uh, years ago, but in Japan, he learned from his teacher that there's a way of doubling your progress, which is you don't rely on your, on your teacher. You take as much responsibility for your development as your teacher takes for developing, which is kind of at the heart of it, really. And around third and fourth, then, you already know a lot about what's required of you in terms of technical shape and dynamic performance and all the other fluffy stuff like Kasoteki, etc., Metsuke, or Chitsuke, all this kind of stuff. So you already know that quite a lot. And now you probably need to start thinking, how are you going to massively accelerate your technical ability? Which isn't got which mustn't have anything to do with just muscular development. That's important as well to get fitter and stronger, but to just basically improve your technique, not through sheer repetition, because life is too short, man. And we all get older and less able to do it. So we better learn quickly how to optimize our practice. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I find that that's the, the ultimate kind of paradox in this case is that you have to go slow in order to learn fast. 
Yeah, exactly. I remember, I can't remember who wrote it. I think it might have been C.W. Nicole in Moving Zen, but he talked about how you develop technique first and speed and power follow naturally and you can't reverse this equation. And if your technique's not up to it, then you, you, you can't do speed and power. You've got to go back to technique. But the, the, the meaning of this is that if you work on technique, it's a bit like E equals MC squared, really. But, you know, we had this idea that in a nuclear explosion, mass gets converted into energy. And that's what we think E equals MC squared means. It doesn't mean that. The equal sign means energy and mass are the same thing by the proportion of the speed of light squared. And doing technique correctly makes speed and power but you can't revert it different to equals mc squared you can't invert this you can't start off with speed and power first and hope that technique will develop but they are you don't have to do a technical practice and then a speed and power practice doing technical practice and edging up a little bit each time or allowing your body to to accelerate because it feels comfortable and dynamic and it seems to be working quite well will lead to speed and power mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm sure like even a student that was to do this, like practice these, some specific techniques slowly, get it, getting a good feel of it, and then do it at regular speed, they'll notice it. But even then, you could just take a video and just show them that there's this direct effect. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Um, so you, you also asked about uh, when to start using CNC for, for, for juniors as well, up to sometime maybe at the beginning of last year to my local dojo the one that's just close to me i had a student who was partially sighted they, they couldn't see they couldn't focus more than say a, a dollar coin at arm's length so they could see this in focus this little bit here but everything else was really really blurry and i was teaching jodo which was dangerous because no, not dangerous but challenging because he had to focus on me as the uchidachi and he had to worry about his own thing so we at that point there, where he couldn't even see what he was doing himself that well, he, he couldn't rely on peripheral vision at all. We had to create a whole raft of things, of calibration points and control strategies so that he could do it. And I have to say, with a little bit of time de dedicated, just me and him training together, we did ma massive progress. We, we got the first kata in one two-hour session. I'd say nailed he could have passed after he'd been only been training like three or four months. He probably could have passed Nidan on that one kata, which I know isn't going to pass you Nidan, but it was up to Nidan level by that point. But it was very untraditional training, I'd have to say. It was really kind of almost like a learning a, um, not perhaps, a, well, maybe like learning a dance routine of just saying, just do the moves, just learn the moves. Mm. Mm. Do, do you see this kind of, changing the way you structure a dojo or is it just another concept that you bring in like sometimes you'll say well let's try doing things with our eyes closed let's try doing something let's do do more embu is this just something like part of a class that you would plug in or is it a general philosophy of training it, it, it's it's creeping in <laughs> involuntarily by hook or by crook anyway so uh, i have a few students ask me to help them with their grading preparation and the first thing i say is video yourself and then the second thing i say is then watch yourself 
And then I, I will do an evaluation with them. And I'll, I'll then say, right, from now going forwards, all evaluations will be done that you video yourself first and then you evaluate yourself and then I'll do it. And so we'll have this kind of ability to self-evaluate first. For all, within, obviously, during lockdown, we're not doing much do dojo training. We're able to do a little bit here at the moment. And without kind of making a big thing about it, I, I now use CNC for helping mostly senior grades in, in my dojo to help them to get things done smoothly. And although I've created in the process of creating a series of CNC strategies for all of SATE EI, I found that just taking the, 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 the philosophy and the concept of it, you can almost import it directly into Coryu and, and help yourself to work your way through the, the complicatedness of Coryu and the, the, the massive increase in coordination that Coryu needs. Just use the, just use the strategies like getting Saibiki out of the way quickly, putting more, uh, this thing about more left hand, which is what every Japanese teacher shouts at every seminar they've been to in, outside of Japan. It doesn't mean pull your hand back more. It means probably more awareness, better timing, breaking Saibiki down into a several component parts and making sure that they're all achieved. This is this is now that I don't, like I said, I don't have to do this as a separate thing anymore. I can just st style my teaching based on those strategies now. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I like the thing that you brought up saying that film yourself and assess it and then then go to the teacher because actually I saw this starting to happen in higher education too. Like right. when I was when I was doing uh, my master's, there was a couple of classes where the professor said, okay, we're, you're going to give some videos first of us teaching the subject. You're going to do some homework and only in class will we talk about it and see what did you learn? What, do we, what were you missing? And that's kind of that shift. And we like often in martial arts, we talk about the Western approach, the Eastern approach, but we could see that there's this also change in general learning. Yeah. And it, it for me too. Uh, and I like what you talk about, about the limited time, because I think about it a lot now is that we just don't have time to grind through everything. So find the most efficient way of learning. And yeah, if, if it takes a sensei 70 years to figure something else, it shouldn't take your student the same amount of time. You're not going right. to get the progress. Yeah. Why, why every session do we have to take three steps forwards and two steps back? Why can't we just be making three steps forwards? Okay, so just to wrap up this kind of initial talk about CNC, because I, I know you're you're going to continue evolving it as you think about it. What are some of these things that are kind of broadly in your mind in terms of these this concept? What what do you, where do you want to take this? You've already done a couple of videos, one on like the Nikitsuke timing, one on the Shihogiri ski, Ukenagashi footwork. Where what's the next step? I want to try and document it as much as I can, really, because I think it's important to start writing now because it's going to take forever to get it into a state where I think I'd now like people to read this. So I have started writing and it's going to be difficult to do much more while we're in lockdown. I can do some stuff. I think I, I didn't run the videos so to kind of prove to people how smart I was. I wanted to get people to give me feedback and I wanted to, to hear what people thought about it because that will help me to develop the, the ongoing stages of CNC. I need to, I, I can do a certain amount of self-analysis outside in the garden, which is where I do most of my EI training at the moment. And it's been really useful because I, I've been doing more training than I would normally do myself. 
uh, and I don't have to kind of follow anybody's idea of as to how fast I should do my kata. And I've got no gradings to worry about at the moment either. So I can, I would like to do more videos and get more feedback from people. I'd like, I'm really looking forward to lockdown being over and really trying it out on my Polish friends because they're, they're very responsive and they won't hold back telling me if they think something isn't working for them. They won't just say, yes, sensei. They'll actually say, I've got no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> and this doesn't seem to be working for me anyway. So I, I need to trial some stuff and see how it works on a broad population as well. So far, I think it's been uh, successful in the few exercises that I have done at seminars, but I really want to, to not make it an academic study, but make it based upon actual experience and trials. Mm -hmm. So if someone were to listen to this, and this is the first introduction to this concept, what, what would you recommend them going to ramp, ramp themselves up quickly? Like maybe they're Yato practitioners or someone that um, wants to think about this more or can provide feedback. So how would they first ramp themselves up to what this is about besides listening to this? And then what's the best way of uh, giving feedback to you? Oh, good question. I think perhaps the so I went back and looked at the CNC videos and I found lots of things wrong with them. So watching the videos is probably a good step. Bear in mind that it's all still work in progress. Reading the Shugyo blog isn't a bad idea, not because it's written by me, but again, it's based upon experiences of being told things by other people. So it's just a way of documenting this. I mean, the 30 second elevator ride description of CNC is videoing yourself and basing your training on what you're actually doing, not on what you think you're doing. Cool. So on YouTube, they can search you, Andy Watson, Yido, maybe adding that term. Shugo blog, again, Google, Andy Watson, Yido, Jodo, Shugyo, S-H-U-G-Y-O. That's correct. <clears throat> yes. Yeah, exactly. Cool. Uh, yeah. And then feedback. I'd just comment on the YouTube video or send you an email yeah. or something. Yeah, either find me on Facebook or comment on the YouTube video. I, I do get notifications when people comment. That would be really, really useful, guys listening. If you could do that and try it at home and tell me what works for you, that would be really good. Cool. Thank well, you. thank you so much. I actually had some questions on or feedback, maybe. Well, they're more oh, please questions, do. But yeah, yeah they're, they're in the document, so you can just go in and take a look. Oh, at sure, that. sure. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but that's related. Answer now. Oh, okay. Yeah. Uh, no, yeah, I have to go. Sure. Yeah, me too. Yeah. Okay. Thanks for your time, Patrick. Cool. Yeah, thank you. See uh, you tomorrow, maybe. To you. Yeah, tomorrow. See Excellent. you then. Okay. Have a good okay. weekend. Bye. Cheers. Bye. Hey guys, I hope you enjoyed that episode because we have a lot more exciting conversations to share as we explore the world of the traditional Japanese martial arts. The Inside Look podcast is brought to you by our amazing patrons over at Patreon. If you are enjoying this work, please consider supporting me at patreon.com forward slash Canada. To contribute to this effort, you can find me on Facebook and Instagram at tokushikai.canada or subscribe to our newsletter at subscribe at tokushikai.ca. Until next time, thanks for listening.